0: All right, guys, we got a special return guest on the show today. His name is Chad Robichaud. So he is a retired force recon Marine and Afghanistan combat veteran, also a former pro MMA champion. This dude's a third degree black belt in jujitsu. At least the last time that I talked to him, he was third degree. He may have got another stripe or two, but he's also a best-selling author, a speaker, the founder of the Mighty Oaks Foundation and a founder of Save Our Allies. And if any of that sounds familiar, and if his name sounds familiar, it's probably because you've been listening to the show for a while because he was on last year on episode 302, but he's on today to talk about a new book he has coming out. And if you guys are listening to this on time it is out right now it's called saving aziz how the mission to help one became a calling to rescue thousands from the taliban so this is going into a lot of detail about what i talked to him about last year and also talked to sarah Varairo and tim kennedy and all these other folks about the mission that started with trying to get his interpreter that was with him on all eight of his deployments to afghanistan when he was on marine recon And trying to get him and his family out. And this was in the months before the fall of Afghanistan in August of 2021. But also everything that was going on after the fall of Afghanistan and our complete withdrawal. We get into a lot of detail in this podcast because we get into, you know, how you even met Aziz. And how do you even know if an interpreter is going to be good for you? And, you know, why was he so good with him as opposed to maybe somebody else? And why did some people have bad luck with other interpreters? But on this particular show, we get into the detail of the withdrawal. When he knew he was going to have to put together a plan and a team to get Aziz out, how that kind of ballooned outside of just saving Aziz and his family to what they ended up doing, which is saving about 17,000 people from Afghanistan, second only to the Department of Defense in terms of getting people out of Afghanistan during the withdrawal process. And we get into all that detail. We, we take a few side roads. Some of the stories he, tell, he tells are about what the Taliban does and what, they, what they're currently doing. It's astonishing because the, the mainstream media is not giving you the narrative of what's actually happening on the ground there in Afghanistan and what the atrocities, uh, the, the atrocities that are happening and, and the negative things that are befalling the people of Afghanistan, especially young people, especially women. It's absolutely astonishing. But I do want to talk about something from the dedication of this book before we get into the interview. In the dedication to this book, it says this, lest we forget Marine Corps Lance Corporal David Espinoza, Marine Corps Sergeant Nicole G., Marine Corps Staff Sergeant Darren Taylor Hoover, Army Staff Sergeant Ryan Naus, Marine Corps Corporal Hunter Lopez, Marine Corps Lance Corporal Riley McCollum, Marine Corps Lance Corporal Dylan R. Marola, Marine Corps Lance Corporal Kareem Nakuli, Marine Corps Lance Marine Corps uh, Corporal Deegan Williams, Tyler Page, Marine Corps Sergeant Johanna Rosario, Marine Corps Corporal Umberto Sanchez, Marine Corps Lance Corporal Jared Smiths and Navy Hospital Corpsman Max Soviak. Those were the 13 United States military members that were lost at the suicide bombing that happened at the gates at HKIA. This was at the Abbey Gate. Something that gets lost in all this Afghanistan stuff is not only just the threat of Afghanistan. I talked about that earlier this year on the show and also at the end, end of last year where I'm talking about the wrap-up, how we've already forgotten about the Afghan people. We've already forgotten about the Taliban, a terrorist organization retaking the the that country and doing what they're doing to it and what that's going to look for us in the future and the negatives that are going to come from that. But we forget about these people that lost their lives during this nonsense that should have never even been there. They should have never been in the position where they would have been anywhere near a suicide bomber that could have killed them as they were trying to evacuate innocent Afghans from the predations of the terroristic, satanistic Taliban. So, uh, again, I may have not pronounced all those names right. I hope you'll forgive me on that. But it's always good to remember those 13 folks because we're not going to get them back. And in a lot of ways, that is the best of us. And that is that thin line that keeps us from ruin and keeps the wolves at the gates. And so, guys, we're just so thankful to have Chad. And I'm so thankful for his friendship and the things that he's done in his career and for his time to come on here and talk about these types of things. So, guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Seven hours, right? Seven (laughs) hours starting now. Start your timer, son. I'm not messing around with you. (laughs) All right, Chad Robichaux, welcome back to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. All right, Dave. Thanks for having me on, man. Hey, uh, we, we said off air. I may have just caught it uh, before I hit the recording. I asked you how much time you had today and you're like, hey, you know, I, I got as much time as you need. I mean, we can't go like six hours like Jocko. So I'm not one to be outdone. So we're going for seven hours today. I hope you're ready. Did you pack a lunch? Let's do it. Let's okay. Do it. I will say this from the very beginning, though. I don't know what, what the problem is here, but... What's going on in your face right now, Chad? Is pretty fantastic. You, you've got a beard. I saw you messing with the mustache beforehand, and I think this is only the second time that I've been out bearded on my own show. The first one was Pastor Joby Martin, and now this. Are y'all like meeting behind my back? Is there like a cabal yeah. of bearded people trying to like take me yeah. out? I don't appreciate it.
1: Yeah, we're like, man, we gotta we gotta outdo Cal, and uh, we gotta make sure that we had the cooler stashes. I actually did this to be the to be kind of funny. And I, I like had a period of time, I wasn't going to speak. So I'm like, I'm gonna grow my mustache. And I got the little uh, curls going. Yeah. And then, and then everyone liked it. So I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna kind of keep it. Joe. I say you should keep it and maybe even trim the beard down a little bit more
0: to make it even more prominent. That could be something that you would do. But I, I would say I, I'm mad enough to fight you, but I know how that would turn out for me. So we're just going to leave that alone. Although uh, we do uh, have a date where you and I are going to roll and we're just going to we're going to figure out just how far behind you I am in the world of danger. But today we, we got to get down to business at some point. We're going to be spending essentially all of our time today talking about your brand new book, which guys, if you are listening to this on time, the book is out now. It's called Saving Aziz, how the mission to help one became a calling to rescue thousands from the Taliban. Now, you were on our show, uh, not Not that long ago, episode 302, where we talked a little bit about some of these things about what was going on in Afghanistan and Ukraine, but we couldn't get into a ton of detail because there were, you know, you were in the process of writing this book and it's got to be with the, the Department of Defense so that they can, you know, check and see what can actually be in the book and what can't be in the book. And we'll get into a lot of the content of the book. We'll walk our way through it. But the new book's out. I guess why write a book? Why not just tell the story through speeches? And why not just let the documentary uh, that we talked to Sarah Verardo about last year? Why don't we let that you know stand on its own two feet? And then I guess how did you get hooked up with David Thomas to co-write it? Because I'm pretty sure didn't David Thomas write uh, the Foxcatcher book, he which did, ended he, up being okay? Did. So
1: how the whole did did that come together? Yeah, yeah, he did three New York Times bestsellers. Uh, Foxcatcher is one of them, two of them. Two of his New York Times bestsellers put in a movie. I mean, well, first of all, to me, like I'm kind of a uh, Maybe like later in life, I start journaling. Uh, hmm. So you know, I do a lot of stuff, and I get I'm very privileged uh, to get to be involved in a lot of things. So I kind of keep track of things I'm doing. And so when Afghan evac start started, uh, I started keeping notes and records of what we were doing. I just keep a notepad in my phone and hmm. kind of journal entry w- what what happened, what's what's going on in my life. And uh, and, and really early on, my publisher Thomas Nelson, uh, Harper Collins, who had uh, I just did. a uh, you know, have a contract to do a couple of books with, we're like, hey, will you keep track of, of everything that's going on in Afghanistan? We'd probably love to do a book on this. And uh, so, I, so I just kept better notes uh, because of that. So I knew, I knew early on that I may uh, turn this into uh, uh, some kind of, I don't want to say a book, but just like a, a record of what happened and if it'd be published in a book, great. Uh, but, you know, when it was all said and done, there's a lot you could do in a 30-minute in a documentary or an hour-long documentary or a podcast but there's a certain thing that a a book does that allows you to really get in the details in the weeds of all the, all the things that happen. And, you know, and, and there's no, you know, there's no limit. You can write a, you know, 250 page book. You can write a 500 page book. You can write as much as you need to write. And, uh, and, and it gives you the opportunity to share with the world, uh, things that, you know, author or a person believes is important. And I believe what happened in Afghanistan, uh, was so important that people need to know. I mean, Look, As an author, of course, I want to, I want to sell books and, and uh, I, I love writing. Uh, I never thought I'd read, read a book in my life at one point, but now, <laughs> now I love writing and, uh, and I want to share and I want to sell books and, and uh, it's something I really enjoy doing. But for this one, for Saving Aziz my goal is uh is to share this story with as many people as possible so people know the truth about what happened in afghanistan because the mainstream media not only uh misled the american people even before the evacuations but during the evacuations the mainstream media did not tell the truth and they and they quickly swept it under the rug and uh and so it's very important to me personally that the world knows the details of what happened in afghanistan they understand the relationship the united states military uh, service members like myself, who did eight deployments in Afghanistan, had with these interpreters uh, that served by us for 20 years. Who they actually were, uh, like in Aziz, is the most incredible example of that. And, and, the, and the, the moments that they saved our lives and helped uh, American service members, they protected the freedom in America uh, without even having, having ever been here. So it's important to tell those stories. It's important for the world to know uh, the mistakes, and I would say mistakes loosely because I believe there's some deliberate. Uh, some deliberate nefarious actions that the White House took and President Biden took to uh, hastily and inappropriately exit us from Afghanistan. It's important the world knows these things and the timeline, a sequence of events, and, uh, it, because this can never happen again. I mean, right now, because of what happened in Afghanistan, the world is a much more dangerous place. Uh, we have uh, empowered our enemies because of leaving Afghanistan. We have created a hotbed of terrorism. We have uh, sold out the people who fought alongside of us for 20 years. And I don't understand how anybody would ever trust the United States military again in any part of the world to serve alongside of us. And uh, so this this needs to be uh, righted. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that I have the ability to do to make – all these, uh, th- these terrible things that happened during the evacuation of Afghanistan, right, is by sharing the truth and the story. And, uh, and like you said, I, you know, I, I did all of my due diligence. It, it went through the uh, Department of Defense and went to the Pentagon. The Pentagon held it for five months and, uh, and redacted the things they want to redact. And so I did my, you know, my full due diligence to be able to share the most accurate truth. And, and everybody knows I'm conservative. Person, but I really want it to be unbiased truth, just what happened hmm. in Afghanistan so this never happens again. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, uh, oh, and I didn't answer your question on Dave Thomas, but I, I will.
0: <laughs> well, I was just going to tell you if we're going to be here for seven hours, you can't be spitting that much fire from the very beginning. You have to kind of pace yourself as we get into it. But yeah, how'd you get hooked up with
1: David? Well, uh, Thomas Nelson came back and they said, okay, we want this to be out quick. Uh, so can you write in eight weeks? <laughs> I said, I can't write in eight weeks. Uh, and, and they, they ended up giving me two extra weeks they gave me 10 weeks. And, uh, and they said, we want to have somebody help you and, um, to organize this and, and put it in a, you know, good sequential format. And so Dave Thomas was one of uh, three people that gave me the pick from, I interviewed three different writers, all phenomenal writers. And, uh, and Dave Thomas said, you know, not, uh, not only did he write three New York Times bestsellers, but he, previous to him being a writer, he was a journalist and, uh, an investigative journalist. He's uh, a seeker of the truth. And, uh, and we felt, I felt like we aligned in that sense that I wanted to tell it from a journalistic perspective of the tr- of, of just unbiased truth. And so he was the right fit. And, uh, you know, we spent some time together in my home and, uh, and we worked back and forth. So I would, I would write a section. He'd write it, and organize it, send it back to me. It was just, it was just back and forth. And we just worked in a in tandem and a really good team and uh, got it knocked out in 10 weeks.
0: Well, and you got that journalistic sense as you read it. It doesn't just read as a, and so there I was with my M4. It doesn't read like a book like that. So there is a little bit more of a journalistic quality. So we're going to get into all the details of the book, but the foreword of the book was written by the great, and I guess you can call legendary Glenn Beck. Uh, and, and I'm not blowing any smoke. Again, he's not here to even hear this, but it was perhaps the greatest foreword. That I've ever read because I've read a lot of books and you know forwards and a lot of times I just kind of skip them because about halfway through it's like okay you're just basically lavishing praise upon this person and it's just kind of vapid it's not it's kind of meaningless but the fact that he wrote such a great forward is one thing but he was integral in helping you and the team pull off the rescue of these Afghan, Afghanistan, uh, of these Afghans rather. And, you know, with the Nazarene fund, obviously with his, uh, radio and podcast audience, you know, you see this in the book, they raised $20 million in about three days to help evacuate yeah. these Afghans. And, you know, a few weeks later, I guess the total ran to more like $46 million yeah. because, you know, he's got this enormous microphone and this enormous audience. So I guess just talk to me a little bit about, you know, not only him writing the forward, but how integral he was to what y'all were doing there. And then obviously we'll get into what exactly happened.
1: Yeah. Well, we've been, we, we became friends years ago through him helping with Mighty Oaks Foundation. He's, he's, he had a heart for Mighty Oaks Foundation the work that we do at Veterans. And so him personally, and then Mercury One, his, uh, he has two charities, Mercury One and Nazarene Fund. Mercury One ended up being, you know, a pretty good partner of ours and I've been on his radio program quite a bit. And so he did what, what everyone, everyone, when I say everyone, like most people in the world, said, "What's happening in Afghanistan isn't right. Uh, I need to do something," and everybody did what they could. Glenn Beck has a microphone. That's his tool. That's his weapon of choice. And what he's good at. So all he did was what he had available to him. He got behind that microphone and said, hey, "Let's raise some money and do something." Uh, he thought he was going to raise a couple of thousand dollars, and it ended up in, like you said, three days it was like twenty something million dollars. And so he 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 didn't he didn't know how to respond to that. He ca- he called me. Uh, Rudy Atala, who works for Mercury One, does a lot of his international operations. Put me in touch with Rudy Atala, with Rudy Atala and said, "Hey, we raised all this money uh, to evacuate people. We don't know what we're going to do with it." And I'm like, mm-hmm. "I know exactly what you're going to do with it. You're going to start helping pay for planes as we get people out because everything else was aligning at that time." And uh, and so we, uh, we we partnered in that way. And man, he he's you know he so like you said, he's not just someone that wrote the forward. He was the integral part of this operation, him, him, Rudy Atala, the Mercury One Foundation, uh, have, you know, have been incredible partners of, uh, Mighty Oaks Foundation and, uh, and the work that we do. And, and, uh, when I, when I asked him to write the forward, it was like a no brainer who was going to write the forward was, was Glenn Beck. And in fact, when I did the audio book, I met him like three days later, and he's like, how's the book coming? And I said, I just did the audio and talk, we were talking about how hard it was to do. And I said, yeah, and I just did your forward. He's like, what? Like, I'm going to do that. So he actually, he actually did the, he did the audio read. Oh, wow course, we got the great Glenn Be- voice of Glenn Beck on the audio uh for the forward. Does
0: it does that make you feel a little bit weird that they're gonna start with that silky smooth voice and then, then go I to know, this gravelly I mean, guy
1: from southern Louisiana? Yeah, my yeah, my uh my I don't even say my Cajun accent, my Cajun uh, like a uh, w- speech impediment. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's uh yeah, have the, the soothing voice of Glenn Beck, and then you gotta listen to me for the rest of the next six hours.
0: Hey, It could be worse. It could be worse, but uh, it's awesome that you did do that. Obviously, that's a big uh, space that's growing—the audiobook space. So I'm glad you're able to put that together. But let's go ahead and get to the book. And again, we're gonna we're gonna pop around and hop kind of in and out of the timeline. But this quote is very appropriate and in a, a great place for us to start. On April 14, 2021, President Joe Biden announced that all U.S. troops in Afghanistan would be out of the country in a time in time for the 20th anniversary of 9/11. Two thoughts immediately came to mind. This is going to be a disaster. Aziz's life is in danger. So I want you to just go back because, because we know what happened and maybe the people in the audience don't know right now, but by the time we're done, you will know. So obviously you knew that this was going to be a disaster because anybody with two brain cells that they could rub together would know that this was going to be a colossal failure on a military front, on a foreign policy front, we get it. But then Aziz, your interpreter, and we'll, we'll get more into Aziz here in a second, a guy that you, you felt like was closer than family. His life was immediately in danger. And you knew that you knew that in April, even though all of the craziness went down in August, take me back to your brain in mid April, 2021. What were
1: you thinking? Well, I mean, you know, exactly what that quote says. I was, I was thinking like, man, this is going to be not only terrible for, for me and Aziz, but for the world. Like, uh, I mean, we have been keeping the Taliban at bay in the mountains of Afghanistan for the last 20 years uh, it had, had matured to the point, And I think this is what the, the problem with the mainstream media had stopped reporting. It had matured to the point to where the was international effort where the entire world was participating together in this joint coalition force to support and advise the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police to keep the, the Taliban in the mountains of Afghanistan. And uh, and it was this joint effort that the world was participating in that was actually working for one of the first times we've seen in in my life team, life my lifetime where it's actually working and we were doing that with only an uh, average of twenty five hundred to four thousand troops on the ground and 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 holding the most strategic location in the world at Bagram Air Force Base It's sits between Iraq Iran Russia and China and so when this was announced to to give this up uh, I was like it's not ours to give up anymore. This is, it belongs to the world, the international community. And, and, and we're going to forfeit this, this uh, strategic land space to our enemies. And I don't just mean the Taliban. I mean, the enemies of of the world, China, Russia, Iran, we're going to forfeit that Pakistan ISI, which I know the United States doesn't call Pakistan enemy, but trust me uh, from the ground, Pakistan is the enemy of the United States, uh, especially ISI, which is their CIA. And, uh, And, you know, all these people want us to leave Afghanistan and we have no reason to leave. The big push, the big lie that the media uh, propagated and I think propagated through, uh, through, especially in the end through the White House was this lie that we were in this 20 year war. It was an endless war. America's sons and daughters were dying. It had to end at some point. Maybe we could do it. Maybe it could be done better, but we had to get out at some point because of the endless war. That's baloney. Like it was not an endless war. We had not fought uh, cons- Conventionally, for two years, since President Trump dropped that MOB uh, and Mm -hmm. then the mother of all bombs and took out the Taliban. After that, no US troops were being killed. No US troops were outside of special operations, uh, which we do. The special operations type missions that would happen in Afghanistan happen in Africa, uh, Syria, all over the world. Uh, It's just what we do uh, to defeat terrorism. But traditional conventional fighting was not happening, it was being done against the Taliban by the Afghan National Army. So we were supporting and advising. And so, to pull us out because we had too many troops there, 2,500 to 4,000, I mean, anybody with a brain, like you said, two brain cells could sit back and look at what we do in the rest of the world. We have 80,000 troops in Japan still since World War II. We have uh, 40,000 troops in Germany and 35,000 troops in South Korea. Those kind of sustaining efforts work and protect not only America's and our national interests, but keeps the world, the security of the world in place. And uh, so, I knew like that political. And it was a political, not a strategic move. That political move to remove us from Afghanistan was going to be a tragedy for the world. And then the other thought was Aziz. I mean Aziz, because of a, uh, you know, some specific things I knew about former teammates uh, and, and uh, that turned Taliban that were now. Uh, had right. disease, life, life and threat. Well,
0: well Chad, let, let's back up there. I appreciate you giving us all the, all the context there on that decision. Cause it certainly was a political decision because again, does it feel like we're at war with Germany? Does it feel like we're at war with Japan? Does it feel like we're at war with any of these other countries where we have tens of thousands of troops? Of course not, but it's just, it was an easy talking point for anti-war You know, Democrats, Libertarians, Republicans, what have you. But going back to Aziz, we keep mentioning Aziz, and maybe not everybody knows exactly who that who that is. So Azizula Aziz, this was your interpreter over there in Afghanistan for the eight deployments that you did over there. But I guess take me through briefly how how you got connected with, with Aziz and what it was like working with him? Because I've, I've read a lot of stories and heard a lot of guys talk about their Terps being turds, right? I mean, they're just bad, bad dudes, or maybe they, they had a second phone that no really, nobody really knew about. And they're, they're giving coordinates out to, to the enemy. And like, it's not always
1: a simpatico relationship, but it seemed to be sure. with you and Aziz from the beginning. Yeah. Well, from getting, I mean, Aziz is a, a person I think understands liberty and freedom more than most Americans even do. He, uh, when he was eight years old, his father told him, uh, that he should learn English. And so he went to a bookstore and at eight years old, started learning English on his own. No one in his family spoke English. Hmm. Uh, by the time he was 14, he was teaching about 800 people uh, English and, and hiding from the Taliban. And uh, when the Taliban caught him, he had to flee to Dubai and, uh, and worked for a, uh, as a houseboy for a Christian family in Dubai. And then when um, when the United States uh, retaliated for 9-11, went to Afghanistan, he thought it was his opportunity to go back to Afghanistan and use his English to support an American military and uh, and fight for for freedom, and liberty for his country, and that's what he wanted to do. So he went back to Afghanistan after being gone for a year, hiding from the Taliban. Ended up going to work first for a third special forces uh, group as an interpreter, and then worked for the uh, made his way uh, on to be selected for the um, the anti-terrorist assistance program at the presidential palace, and then we uh, then he earned his way to come over to our JSOC task force, Joint Special Operations Command task force, as a combat interpreter. And, uh, and as a combat interpreter, he was assigned to me. Uh, this was my first deployment of eight in Afghanistan as part of that JSOC task force. And uh, really quickly, we noticed something special about him. And he went from interpreter to becoming, uh, going into a more witting program. Meaning we, we let him know a little bit more. He got a little bit, of, we got some background on him, uh, polygraphed him, ended up becoming a partially witting uh, teammate and got trained to operate with us. Eventually, he became fully witting. Uh, fully polygraph, fully background, and, uh, and 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 became my sole teammate. Which a lot of people may not understand that my job was AFO, Advanced Force Operator, which meant I worked in a singleton capacity by myself to go out in mountains of Afghanistan and Pakistan and really build the clandestine infrastructure to put my assaulter teams on target to capture, or kill bad guys. And and uh, in, in that capacity, it's kind of like working a little bit undercover. You uh, you have to work you know by yourself and, and blend in with locals, and uh, and and you have a Afghan counterpart and Aziz was my counterpart. That's why I had the same interpreter for all eight deployments, which is uncommon in traditional military, but, uh, you know, conventional operations. But for me, I had the same interpreter, uh, my whole employment. And and again, he wasn't just my interpreter. he's my teammate, but you spend that much time with someone, uh, they become your friend and he, he became my friend and, uh, and you put his life on the line for me every day, Saved my life tangibly like three times. I've seen him that save the lives of, uh, he just was recognized by Congress yesterday. Um, uh, for his uh, 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 courageous effort to save four Navy SEALs uh, that were t- trapped in Taliban village. Uh, he, he and I, he. He and I and one other person went to do this evacuation, a clandestine evacuation. And even though I was in charge of him, he led the effort uh, and uh, put his life on the line and and, uh, to risk his life to save these four Navy SEALs and and prevent a traditional QRF, which would have cost civilian and, and military life, likely. And so just an incredible human being. I say he saved my life on three occasions. But when you work with a guy like that, he probably saved my life every day, like, don't talk to that person. Don't walk there. Don't mm-hmm. eat that. If you talk right now, they're going to kill us. Like he, he was like just the most incredible human being. And when we weren't operating, like I didn't go back to base and he went home. I actually lived in his home at times. Uh, I ate dinner with his family. I was there when his oldest son, my was born and my I was born. And we just, I mean, love this guy and uh, he's family to me.
0: Well, that, so, that's the thing, Chad, that was so apparent as I'm reading the book is like, okay, if he was just a good terp, And he just did his job and he was squared away and he was part of, you know, uh, supporting the mission and wasn't, you know, giving any intel to the enemy or something like that would have been good enough. But the fact that there was a, bond between the two of you and between him and the American forces and the allied forces. Like that was a, 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 very, very apparent thing that that was important to a different degree than what maybe I've seen in some other memoirs where it's like, okay, this was a turp, and he was really good at it and he got us out of trouble. And you know, we'll let the, the readers of the book, guys, it is in the show notes. You should go pick it up yourself. We'll let the readers, you know, check out, you know, the, the times that he helped uh, save your life and all that, the ones that you at least specify. But there was a very interesting thing in the book where you describe Aziz being very interested, but also very excited in the election between George W. Bush and John Kerry. And yeah. he was so elated when George W. Bush won re-election. but you really couldn't understand why that was so important to him. Okay. But then yeah. he finally said, he finally said to you, I'll show you. So what exactly did he show you to prove why that was so important to him?
1: Yeah, 2004 election. I, we had a he invited me over to his house for this election party and there's like food yeah. and everyone there, it's like wall to wall. I describe it in the book as like a Super Bowl party. And uh never something I never seen, you know, until recently. I think this last the first time I've ever seen a party like that was like, you know, this last Trump Biden uh, 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 but I'd never been to anything like that before, especially in Afghanistan. And i this huge party and uh and then everyone's just and laid it when, when Bush wins. And, and, you know, their fear was that if, if Kerry got elected, they would withdraw troops mm-hmm. just like President Biden did from Afghanistan. The Taliban would do exactly what we just saw them do. And, uh, and, and, his, and he thought it was important to show me. So he took me to some place, took me to this uh, apartment building where uh, the, the Taliban would go and shoot up the building and persecute women and, and uh, rape women there. And women would throw themselves off the roof of the building to prevent from being raped by the Taliban. Uh, and he took me to this place we refer to um, as the Killing Pool, and uh, and uh, I've wrote about it in an unfair advantage. I've written articles on the Killing Pool, and it's as part of this book and Saving Aziz because it's just it's, it was such a life uh, altering perspective for me because before that I think I was in Afghanistan you know fighting for our country in retaliating for 9-11. But after seeing the Killing Pool and what took place there, I I, I, I matured in my life at that, in that moment to have a more global perspective and understand. The impact America has on the world and uh, when we're a strong America, uh, how the world's a safer place and people like Aziz and his family uh, face less oppression because of uh, the strength America has and made me realize how how important America's position uh, and strength is in in the in the world. I mean, um, you know, Aziz showed me in the killing pool. Where people were thrown off the oh, by, by the way, the killing pool is this, I'm kind of going ahead. yeah, it's this old Russian swimming pool that when the Russian had the Russians had occupied Afghanistan built this pool on the top of this mountain, a uh, hilltop in the middle of Kabul, and it was an Olympic sized pool, three tiers of uh, a diving, so you know the Russians are really big in the sports and Olympics games, so they they had put that pool there, and now it's empty and drained and and the Taliban used it for executions. So Aziz took me there to see that and see where you know, people were ma- lined up in a deep end and mass executed. People were lined up in a shadow shallow end, kids level height of uh, people like and uh, and then how people had a noose, a steel noose hanging off the, the the one of the platforms where they would uh you know, hang throw people off. And Aziz talked about, you know, watching people being thrown off the top and hitting the concrete, like just tossed off like garbage by the Taliban and and uh, just seeing that firsthand, I remember even taking my Leatherman and pulling some casings out of the wall where it was just riddled with thousands of bullet holes. And it just you know, changed my perspective. Uh, I mean, it made me realize that, hey, this isn't just about the United States going in and doing some payback for 9-11. These people are really oppressed. These, the Taliban is, is evil. And, uh, and, and we have the opportunity through our strength to, to help people around the world that can't help themselves. And uh, I think it grew, grew uh, a lot that day.
0: Well, Chad, isn't it so interesting that while all this is going down in August of 2021, we weren't hearing very many stories about that on most mainstream news media. What we were hearing is that this... Yeah, it's the same Taliban in name, but they're they're reformed or, or they're an actual government, you know, not basically a, a group of eighth century barbaric terrorists, right? Like uh, we we got this idea, like we didn't hear about those stories, and a lot of those things were kept under wraps. But don't worry, we'll we'll get to the mainstream media
1: a little bit more here in a second. But I mean, go ahead. I, th- this is anybody with a brain would ask this question: the United States, the White. When I say the United States, the White House negotiated the surrender of that country with the Taliban, the enemy we've been fighting for 20 years. The, the United States White House did not talk to anybody in Britain, anybody in Germany, none of our international allies, not even the Afghan government that we, that we put in place over 20 years. Uh, they didn't negotiate with anyone else except the Taliban, our enemy of 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How can that make sense to anyone? Put politics aside, how can it make sense to anyone that the White House would negotiate with our enemy it wasn't their country to turn it over to. I mean, yeah. it's just crazy to me. That well, to have,
0: oh, no, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. You know what's interesting to me? It just occurred to me, uh, even after reading this book and talking to you a lot about this uh, off air and even into now, isn't it so interesting that there are even Azizas out there? Because if those people were not oppressed, then why would they work with the Americans? Right. And you could save money and, you know, opportunities and, you know, the opportunity to go somewhere else. But if their country was the land of milk and honey to begin with, and oh, if the yeah. Taliban were just a group of people that just wanted to come in and help everybody and make everybody whole and and good, then why would they want to work with y'all so badly? Because
1: right. Aziz wasn't unique. You know what I mean? No, no. I mean, um, I mean, they you know, I remember just having conversations. I mean, when you spend, you know, months in, in the mountains with someone, you have a lot of conversations and, and the conversations that, that would just blow me away. Like, hey, I, w- I want my daughters to go to school. I want my yeah. daughters uh, to be safe. I don't want my daughter to be, you know, you know forced into marriage and raped at, at, at nine years old by some 50 year old guy. And, uh, and, and you know, everything he talked about fighting for, her, and he did, I watched him fight for. Her. And by the way, like I've seen so many Afghans like fight for their country. I think one of the biggest insults that i ever heard uh, in my life was when President Biden got on the uh, media and said, "We can't help these people if they won't fight for themselves." W- what what an insult to those people! They over sixty thousand Afghan warriors died fighting for this country in the last in the last twenty years. That's not counting the civilians. Sixty thousand Afghan so- soldiers died fighting for their country, and uh, and we pulled the rug out from them. Overnight, without notifying them, took away their air support, took away their military, handed it over to to, to their enemies. They would not fighting the Taliban; they're fighting ISI and Iran and uh, all these proxy people. and 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 we just sold them out. So to say that these people didn't want to fight they were they were fighting for their freedom. And uh, and they they within days within days we saw we saw people uh, the the imams coming in and saying we want a list of all your women from fourteen from 14 to 45, because they're going to be war brides within days. Like not, this is not even, that's not even the end of August. Uh, we're seeing this happen. And uh, this is the new Taliban. I mean, the, this is the new Taliban, the Taliban, the new Taliban takes uh, 20 uh, uh, Afghan commandos, our Afghan commandos that we train, puts them out in the street and executes them. That's the new, this is, this is uh, in mid August, this is happening. Yeah, new Taliban, the, right. <laughs> they're, they're reformed, right? So we're supposed to believe that they're reformed. But here, the funny,
0: the only reason why a Joe Biden can get up there and say something like that is one, because he's he's a simpleton at this point, his brain's not functioning properly. But also, you only get by with that if you can give a univariate analysis. And what I mean by that is if you say, hey, you know, the Taliban just marched their way through Afghanistan, didn't even have to, you know, fire off a weapon before they got to Kabul. And you're like, oh, well, these people just laid their their weapons down. But that's a univariate analysis. If you go one l- layer deeper, it's just like you said, well, if they had their entire defense structure around having the aid of the United States military and you know our air assets and something like that. And then all of a sudden you take that away. That would be like you back in your MMA career going into the octagon after you have your arms and legs chopped off. It's like, yeah. okay, I guess technically you can fight, but this isn't the way that you trained. It's it's not anything that, that we would would have wanted you to do moving forward. So, again, that's the only way that you even get to something like that. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, they, didn't their, they
1: didn't lay their weapons down. We laid our weapons down. Uh, and and uh, you know, and, and what, I think when someone says something like that, they have to really understand the perspective of being in those shoes, right? You always put yourself mm-hmm. in those shoes. I've seen Afghan soldiers like crying, not wanting to hand their rifle over. But these aren't guys that, that are like, he, will they fight to the death? Of course they would probably fight to the death, but guess what? Like the, a, a block down the street is their wives and children. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't like me, but me being on deployment and, uh, and my wife and children are safe at home. And I'm like, uh, let's, let's go to the end. We're going to fight till the end. Uh, these guys have that kind of grit, but in this scenario, if if they kept fighting, they're going to watch their little children be raped in front of them. They're going to watch their wife be stuck feet first in a wood chipper. Like, this is the kind of stuff that they're facing. This isn't like, oh, how tough am I going to be? How much do I want to fight for my country? Total, total, total uh, detachment from reality and understanding a situation when comments like that were made.
0: Well, that's not the only thing you could say, uh, you know, detached from reality in terms of the Biden administration. But, you know, we'll digress from there. I do want to go back to something that's a little known thing about this story, but also the, the plight of many Afghans is, again, going back to April of 2021, you knew things were getting hot the moment Joe Biden said what he said. But something a lot of people don't know, even the folks that know this story, is that you guys were trying to get Aziz and his family out of Afghanistan long before the Taliban took over in August, so months before. But y'all yeah. were going through the the United States' special immigrant visa process or what people probably heard of, the SIV process. Yeah. And if anyone knows anything about our immigration process, obviously – it's super broken. It's ran by the federal government, which is not an efficient uh, thing in any way, shape, or form. And especially when it comes to immigration, you know, you have things that shouldn't take as long as they're taking, taking 10 times as long as, that, that as you would even expect. So just very briefly, take us through the SIV process and what y'all were trying to do well before August of 21.
1: Well, in, in 2009, uh, an act was passed to, that would allow anybody that fulfilled their contractual commitment to the United States uh, government as an interpreter, it would take nine months to get their process through and have the, uh, a path to citizenship in the United States, uh, them and their immediate families. And so uh, and so Aziz was in that process. And again, you look at a somebody like Aziz, this is a guy that did 15 years with special operations, background checks, polygraphs. Uh, we know who he is. Uh, and, and he had been in that process that's supposed to take nine months. He had been in it for six years. Uh, so when President uh, Biden made that announcement, uh, I knew that you know, I need to pull every string I could. And I know a lot of people in Congress. I know people in Senate. And even with the connections I had, we still could not navigate this broken system. And so that's when we began doing alter- alternate means to be able to get him out, even if it didn't mean him coming to the United States, just get him out, get him, his wife and kids out. And, uh, and we had uh, put a couple of plans in place uh, uh, to clandestinely go mm-hmm. in Afghanistan, build a cover, uh, kind of like, you know, the things we did before and find reasons to get him out. Uh, that way, okay. find ways to come out that way.
0: So, so you had the plans in place, but those were like the you know break in case of fire plans type of a thing. Yeah. When did it become apparent to you, Chad, that you were going to have to actually actually put together an operation and do an operation to save Aziz and his family? Like, where in the timeline did that become? Like, okay, this is what we're going to have to do.
1: Probably like late June is when I knew, um, okay, you know we're we're going to have to do something you know, we're going to have to do something physically to get them out. Okay. Um, cause, cause you know, I, I knew when, when president Biden put this timeline in place, Yeah, uh, you know, look, anybody knows any kind of negotiations, you don't give somebody a timeline and say, we're going to be out by this date. You lost all negotiating power at that point. You know, you could have put terms and again, I don't agree with the, the withdrawal. We talked about that, but if you are going to do it, you could have put terms like when we get our people out, when we get our allies out, when we get our equipment out, then we will leave. But don't say we're going to leave by this date. Uh, then right. the Taliban only has to do is, is wait, obstruct mm-hmm. and wait. And that's what—that's exactly what they did. They—they they executed it as, as a barbaric, uh, as a you know, caveman as they are. They—they uh, they negotiated this much more brilliantly than we did.
0: I mean. And- Chad, you have to think about it this way. Let's let's go back to the ancient wars. Whenever they had, you know, uh, people running letters or taking horses and taking letters to the front lines and things like that. If someone had lost a letter and it ended up in the hands of the enemy and it let people know when the withdrawal was going to happen, the exact same thing would have happened in ancient warfare yeah. as happens today. They're just going to pause everything they're doing. They're going to batten down the hatches. They're going to play defense and wait for that day to come. I mean, again, this is this is not you know, 3D underwater chess type of thing. Like this is yeah. pretty basic. So you realize around June that this is going down. Then we got August and, and everything's popping off. Everybody certainly knows that we don't need to do a retread of that right now, right. but you had to select a team of people that, that you would trust to be able to help you do this mission. And again, at this point, you're thinking it's Aziz and his family and nothing beyond that. So take me through, I guess, how you went through the process of selecting the guys that you did. And then obviously a lot has been made about the fact that Tim Kennedy was a part of that mission, which you know led to some other incidences that weren't so nice later. Don't worry. We'll talk about the bus incident, but then you also get connected with Sarah Verardo at this time, guys, we had her on the show last year, go and check that out. But I mean, how did you select your team? And then how did Sarah kind of come in? Because this was a, you know, for occasion, this was some gumbo that was happening right now and everyone kind of had their own, their
1: own place in it. So
0: how'd that come together?
1: Well, um, the original team I was selecting was we we I contacted Richard McGinnis from a uh, uh, Tucker Carlson's team, mm-hmm. daily the daily uh, caller, um, and we were going to go in as a media team. I was going to take the daily caller in, and they were going to actually capture real media. But we were going to the cover for us was we were going to be his security and advising team, and, and Aziz was going to be our cultural consultant, and then uh, let them we were help them get their coverage, and then we're going to do the, all the interviews back in Dubai, and I would be able to move Aziz and his family out. That was the original plan. Uh, the Daily Caller approved to do it. Richard McGinnis was gonna on board. He's like been undercover with Antifa and stuff. Super cool guy. And so that was the original plan. Uh, and so I pulled guys together that could just do that. A guy named uh, uh, Dan, uh, who was in Afghanistan before, did a lot of amazing special operations stuff. Uh, I had asked Tim Kennedy to be part of it. And uh, so as this plan uh, started unfolding, it was going to take a little bit longer than we needed to. And I've seen things escalating. So we were like, hey, we're just going to go in and, and, and get him. We're just going to go in and get him. So I'm going to need a bigger team. And so uh, I was looking for guys specifically that one had already been uh, had extensive on a combat because I didn't want anybody that, that was looking to fill their wild oats in something mm-hmm. like this. Like this isn't the time to go fight the Taliban. This isn't the time to be a tough guy or a cool guy. Uh, that hadn't to be out of their system. So I was looking for mature guys like that. Obviously they couldn't be they had to be veterans. Why active duty and why veterans are not active duty because active duty wasn't allowed to participate. So we needed we needed veterans. Um, I wanted guys that had ASO level training, advanced special operations, meaning they had to had been trained in the ability to be more singleton and independent and not rely on a a unit, uh, a unit. Um, that's where guys like Tim Kennedy came in. Uh, Tim's popular. Everybody knows him for being popular, but what Mm -hmm. people don't know is Tim's, you know, uh, not only a green beret, he's a sniper, which is a lot of, gives you a lot of independent training and he's ASO level three trained. So he has like the independent special operations. Uh, so he's very experienced. And I wanted guys that I've known for years that I knew I could trust personally. And I've known Tim for like 14 years. And, I needed somebody that could help me be a platform and a face for this to raise yep. money because it would cost millions of dollars. And so a lot of people were like, why Tim? Uh, and th- for all those reasons, Tim was yeah. the perfect guy. I knew I was going to have to raise a lot of money. I knew I, knew I was going to have to have a public platform to be able to uh, pull this off. I knew I needed guys with uh, that were experience, not overly gung ho, uh, mature and had that ASO level three type experience that I, that I had. Uh, Mike Glover was, was on the list. Uh, if you guys know Mike Glover, um, you know he's you know came from the, the the unit, the you know Delta Force had a CIA uh, background, and, and uh, so we started pulling together all these guys, uh, Navy SEALs, Force Re- some other Force Recon Marines, uh, Green Berets. Uh, uh, we had a uh, had a uh, some guys from the CIA's paramilitary unit, uh, ground branch and maritime branch on board. So we put together a really really great team, and you uh, know as we putting it together. Uh, to go get Aziz, I think was one of the, one of our teammates uh, said, Hey, what about this group of uh, 3,500 orphans? And I think that was a moment where we just kind of sat around and looked and said, look at this experience we have. Like we have the most qualified guys on the planet to do this that are not currently still doing it on the veteran side. And we all clearly have a passion to do it. We all felt our hearts were burdened by God to go do the right thing uh, uh, when the government's of the world wouldn't. And so we were like, why are we just going to get a, you know, as much as the love as these, why we're just going to get a family of of, of eight people, uh, a wife, you know, husband, wife, and six kids. Let's get as many Americans, uh, interpreters, their families, vulnerable people groups like women, children, uh, Christians that are getting persecuted. Let's get as many people as we can. And I think that decision, uh, I think being obedient to that calling that we felt God was putting on our heart, uh, from that moment on, we just seen a uh, what I would what I would say as as a divine miracle. Because uh, what happened in the next few days was something that I'm not smart enough to pull off or capable enough to pull off, uh, and it just is bringing together of Sarah Verardo, uh, who had, who I knew from previous uh, veterans policy stuff, um, and, and Tim, and a guy named Joe Roberts, and and this uh, these uh, there's, there's a couple of guys named Sean Seaspray, uh, you yeah. guys Seaspray, uh, Nick Palmisano, like all these people had different things to bring to the table. My son, Hunter, uh, yeah. Marine, Afghanistan veteran, all these, diff- they just, we just all had different things to bring to the table that miraculously brought the perfect team together to pull us off. Not only did our skill sets, but our relationships. Like, uh, when I say this miraculous, a series of events, you know, Sarah was able to get the joint chiefs, uh, everybody hates Millie. And, uh, I'm not a big <laughs> fan of Millie myself and I'll probably get Sarah will probably be mad at me for saying that, but, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but the truth is, um, as much as a lot of us don't like General Milley, he gave us permission to get on that, uh, Bog Amer- I mean, to get on Hkaya and be the only uh, civilians on there to be able to extract people from the airport. Uh, so we had those permissions from the Joint Chiefs. A lot of people were, were like uh, saying, you know, man, we were like a rogue. People were suggesting like this is rogue operation mm-hmm. and we were just going there, getting in the military's way. Just if you pause for a second, think about how ridiculous it is that, that a bunch of veterans would have the ability – to get C seventeen plane, planes land on a DoD controlled airstrip and uh, and and go outside the wire, evacuate people on their own in this rogue operation. How ludicrous does that sound? That we even be allowed? I'm not that capable of doing that. We had we had all the permissions, all the coordination. We had permissions from the Joint Chiefs. Uh, we landed there and was able to pull off this operation. All the people that we put on that airport were cleared by the by the Joint Chiefs and manifested, sent to another country to be screened by the by the State Department. We don't have the power to do anything to get in anybody's way. Uh, so that all happened. Uh, Glenn Beck came in with 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 money within um, within this period of three days, and then we need a place to bring people because you can't move someone from a country without a visa to another country. That's called human trafficking. The only place you could actually do that is in Laredo, Texas, by the way. But, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, we we, we, uh, we had to get permission. So we, we contacted the Royal family of uh, United Arab Emirates, told them what we were doing. And uh, because uh, some of our teammates had pr- – relationships with the Royal family. Uh, they allowed us to bring people to the humanitarian center, provided us doctors and air all the resources that you would imagine to do something like that, including giving us planes, C-17 planes. And so when I say it was a divine miracle, like that all happened in like four, three to four days. That's like, impossible. each one of those are impossible. Well, yeah. And Chad, as you're reading the book,
0: that becomes apparent. It's like, okay, You can chalk everything up to accidents, right? If you're one of those people like God doesn't exist, you know, we're just highly evolved chimps that used to be fish, that used to be goo. Great. Like that, that's fine. Like that's where you'll come to that. But you see all these people pop into your life. And again, going back to the Tim thing, if he was only a social media influencer, he would have been useless to the cause. If he was only an operator, you probably could have used him. But you got an influencer and an operator that has, you know, a couple million people that follow, you know, his every workout and his every suggestion. And so it was, it was a good group of people. But throughout all this, you do see the hand of God in the work that you were doing. But I, and that actually brings me to a quote in the book in keeping with military tradition and as a unique identifier among the other groups with similar aims, we came up with the name for our team task force six, eight, the name was inspired by Isaiah six, eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. So this is where we get into a lot of other areas where there are people that get very, very uncomfortable with Christians that are doing things that could potentially be violent and they're Christians as if those things couldn't possibly go together. Bill Rapier and I, uh, you know, uh, Navy SEAL, we we talked quite a bit about that, you know, about killing and then what that means in terms of his Christian faith and all those types of things. But that does make Christians uncomfortable because there are Christians out there, Chad, that they're like, I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. And so they basically take this philosophically pacifistic approach to everything in the world. And what they would do, Chad, is they would much rather send thoughts and prayers to Afghanistan as mm-hmm. opposed to sheepdogs that are going to go and get people out of danger. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, obviously coming up with that name, it's a cool name, Task Force 6-8. You should sell t-shirts. But at the same time, like being a Christian and feeling that as your basis for your calling to go and do what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I would say to those Christians is actually read the Bible. Uh, because That would uh, be
0: helpful, yeah.
1: <laughs> because, you know, the Bible is, is, is full of people who actually didn't just sit back and pray but took action. Uh, they, they, You know, I, I just spoke yesterday on, on the subject, and one of the things I spoke on was Gideon. You know, Gideon's, uh, mo- you know, the most unsuspecting warrior. Most of the people that God has used have been unsuspecting people because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, he, he uses the, the unexpected to do the unimaginable because he'll get the credit for it. I mean, Gideon was the weakest person and the weakest tribe of Israel, and the Midianites Midianites overtook it. And God calls him to go uh, do this incredible, incredible thing. And I uh, compare that to the the twelve of us, a bunch of gray hair veterans, going out to do this impossible thing. Could the United States military have done it? Sure, they could have, and they could have done it better. But you know, the military would have got the credit. But I think when the twelve of us, old timers, did it the way we did it, you know, the only thing I could do right now and and Truthfully, the only thing I could do right now is point to God uh, to perform this miracle to allow us to be part of it, to, to rescue these 17,000 people. You know, and, uh, and you know, so uh, the Bible is full of stories like that. And, you know, I don't think uh, uh, Christians should be pacifists. I think Christians are the ones that stand up when uh, when things are principled and it's time to do the right thing. Uh, there's a huge difference between uh, having a mur- murder and having a murderous heart and doing things uh, uh, unethically to, to take human life. And uh, and 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 going actually killing uh, people and extinguishing evil. I mean, uh, throughout history, God has used uh, you know good men, good women to stand up and extinguish evil. And sometimes that means that means killing and violence. Uh, you know that story of Gideon. You know the Israelites were 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 oppressed for ten years, and Gideon gets called up, and he puts thirty five thousand of his friends together. Uh, obviously, it's more popular than me because I was able to get twelve, but he get thirty five thousand of his friends. <laughs> against 135,000 Midianite man Midianite army. And God, God takes the the 35,000 and keeps telling him it's too many, it's too many. And, and the story goes, he brings them down to 300 men and, uh, in a overtake the Midianite army and, uh, and kill everyone. And, and, uh, and, 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 it's this amazing story of, uh, you know, God calling people to stand up against evil and, uh, and, and give this example that, you know, you, you can't, that God's hand is always going to be on those, uh, oppressions like that. And, and uh, I think in this case, you know, God called us, unexpected group of people, orchestrated it all together in, in a way that I keep getting credit for uh, pulling this together. You know, I got the Bonhoeffer Award and Congress just recognized me and stuff like that. But the truth is, I wasn't capable of pulling this together. I look back and God orchestrated the perfect team, the perfect plan, and, uh, and we were able to help a lot of people. And, uh, you know, when the governments of the world failed uh, to do the right thing, it was just people that were willing to we're obedient to that burden that God put in our hearts and said, yes. And then honestly, I feel like God orchestrated the rest and we were just along for the ride and doing it and just being obedient the whole way. And, uh, you know, I'm super thankful to have been a part of it. And, uh, and, and, you know, my heart does still break though. We got to do a lot. We got 17,000 people up, but I mean, there's still 40 million people, people there.
0: Well, and and there's so much more to talk, talk about when it comes to those things. But I mean, here with undaunted life, we are here to equip men to push back darkness, not to equip men to think about darkness, not to equip men to look at darkness and lament it and go, oh, isn't that so terrible? It's to push back darkness. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. Again, you said, you know, Glenn Beck's uh, weapon is his microphone. Your weapon is a little bit different. Other people's weapons are their brains or their connections, like Sarah Verardo or something like that. Mm. But I think part of the reason why some people can hide behind this veil of, of oh, I'm just going to pray for these people. And that's all we, anyone can really do. And I certainly don't want us to be violent is because the news media, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, did a decent job of showing the downfall of Afghanistan, but there were tons of stories and tragedies they refused to cover. And that was likely to make the Biden administration not look so terrible because they were taking it on the chin and for good reason. And so I don't mean this question to be voyeuristic in any way, but I want it to put a finer point on the stuff you were talking about with the killing pool and, and some of the things that happened thereafter. But what are some of the stories that that you know of that the general public was never told about as it pertains to just the horrifically satanic and evil things that the Taliban is capable of and the things that they did before and after the withdrawal?
1: Yeah, well I mean um, I think one of the most grotesque things to me and uh, is is the, the the abuse of children in Afghanistan. Uh, not just keeping them from going to schools. I mean, everybody would agree that it's horrible not to let little girls go to schools and force little boys to go to madrasas to be taught hate and, be, and and go and become terrorists. Those things are those things are are, are terrible, right? But but the direct uh, rape of children um, and not just little girls, little boys. And uh, and the Taliban, you know, the culture of the Taliban is you know it's it's permissible and uh, and very uh, and very systemic to rape little boys. Uh, in, in, the, in the Taliban culture, uh, little girls uh, are, are being with by by mid September. Little girls were already being sold for five hundred bucks. Nine year old little girls were being sold for five hundred bucks to fifty year old men to become child child brides. Uh, this was happening, and we had video testimony of it, and we were sending it to mainstream media, and they would not they would not play it. Uh, they would not report on those stories. And, and by the way, all outlets, I don't just mean the left wing ones that we mm-hmm. hate, uh, all outlets would not play it. Uh, there was a story that we had verse hand testimony, a story that this man, uh, was in Kabul, uh, and he had five daughters and he was, you know, he killed murder, suicide at, uh, all five of his daughters. He killed all five of his daughters and then killed himself because he could not uh, bear. He thought it was a better way for them to die that way than to become raped. The rest of the... Anybody would think like, why would you murder your five daughters? And I'm not saying he should have, but uh, to him, it would have, have been worse. It's better to murder his five daughters than to watch them be child uh, slave sexual slaves the rest of their life. And uh, this Me Too movement that we went through the last few years ago, all the the um, the wokeism that we've seen, um, and people stand against uh, sexual atrocities, which you know, I mean, we had that voice against sexual atrocities. They were all silent though, when twenty million Afghan women and, and Afghan girls were immediately turned over uh, to be sex slaves. No one has spoke out. No one is willing to speak out uh, for, for these women. And right now, as we sit here uh, doing this podcast. Little little girls and women are being sexually enslaved day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute in, in Afghanistan. And the world won't even not only won't, won't do anything about it, but they won't even speak about it. And uh, and, and it's you know, it's so hypocritical and it's unconscionable that 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 we would want to silence this.
0: Yeah, Chad. Where are the second, third, and fourth wave feminists, feminists wearing their pussy hats? You know, going over to Afghanistan with their cute signs and their funny T-shirts and all that. Where are those people at? Because we love to talk about the casting couch, which should be talked about. I don't want to belittle those things, but you know, that's quite a bit different than somebody that is being forcibly raped on a daily basis by multiple men and doing so, you know, in in line with Sharia law and everything like that. So obviously, it's, it's a very
1: real different thing. Oppression. Yeah, it's actually, real sexual oppression. It's real. Uh, I mean,
0: yeah, they want to complain about being catcalled as they're walking down the street with a, a deep V shirt that they wore on purpose so that they could get attention. And then when they get at that attention, it's like, ah, oh, you know, what, what are you doing? Talking to me, whistling at me. I'm not a piece of meat. And so I don't want to, you know, I don't, I'll digress from there so I don't get us in any yeah. more trouble. But I think it goes back to a point you were making earlier, Chad, about the fact that. We were negotiating with the Taliban as if they were a legitimate government. And so to give you a sense of what this legitimate government, major air quotes there, I want to read this quote from the book. President Biden knew he had placed himself in a position not to keep his word to the American people at the cost of our citizens and allies. So he and the State Department entered into negotiations with the Taliban to extend our withdrawal deadline. The Taliban said no. If it wasn't clear before, the world now knew that the Taliban, a terrorist organization, was calling the shots on the withdrawal, not the United States or President Biden. We had already given away negotiating power. We never should have asked the Taliban for an extension. We only needed to tell them we will leave when we are done with our evacuation. End of discussion. If your Taliban soldiers get in the way or harm any Americans, we will respond with force and it will delay our departure. Stand down, stand aside, because we will evacuate every single American and ally we choose to before we go. Now, that would have been a nice message. That would have been a quote that you certainly would have heard from the previous president from Donald Trump. That would have been a quote that we saw, you know, Jocko Willink recorded a video that went viral around this time where he had basically said the same thing to where it's like, oh, no, 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 no. You're confused. You don't get to tell us what to do. We get to tell you what to do. But the Taliban said no. And Joe Biden said, okay. I guess i guess we'll just go on with your uh, that whole idea and this gets into the whole discussion about the state department was put in charge with the withdrawal and not the department of defense and there's other things there that we can't exactly talk about but just take me through this this idea like because i don't want to be a conspiracy theorist i promise i don't want to i have no tinfoil hats near me that i can grab and put on but it's like it's almost as if they wanted it to go this poorly because how else could it have gone this bad? I don't know that I could have planned
1: out a way for it to go as poorly as it did, Chad. Yeah, I mean, it's it. it, it I've heard a lot of uh, of terminology used like botched withdrawal or, or the mistakes that were made. I don't think it was botched at all. I don't think any of these mistakes were made. I think this was deliberate. Uh, these were deliberate decisions. Uh, that, you know, as much as you know, you or I don't like the decisions that are being made in the White House, they aren't dumb uh, people there, they, th- these aren't accidents. These aren't, uh, mistakes. These are deliberate decisions, uh, with consequences and, and, uh, being known in advance when they made them. when they make them. Um, and, you know, the, pre- the president of the United States has the advice and wisdom of you know, the joint chiefs and, uh, and, and all the people around them from the intelligence communities that tell that were telling him what was going to happen, but he chose to do those things anyway. And, uh, so it's, you know, what the motivation is behind it, you know that's where the speculation comes in. I, 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 I certainly have my uh, my assumptions with the motivations were, uh, but um, you know to to tell the Taliban, to tell the Taliban a date and let them call the shots like that. Um, you know it, it, it cost it, I mean, there's no other way around. that. I'll just say it: it cost American lives. Um, we it cost you know, the decision to do that cost American lives. It cost the lives of our allies. And, and now because of that, I do believe that we present day still have Americans trapped in Afghanistan because of that decision. Uh, certainly we have uh, over over 80,000 of our interpreters still there. Um, and then their family members account for about 300,000, all people that have contractually uh, – that we are contractually obligated to as a country to uh, fulfill their – promise that we had an SIV system to bring to America, they are, they are trapped there now and, uh, and victims to the, the Taliban. And so the president's decision to handle things that way and put the, put the, uh, decision-making in the hands of the Taliban and not stand up with strength and then say, uh, the, you know, that quote you said earlier, that we'll leave when we have our people out, when we're done, done with our evacuation, that's when we'll leave, uh, costs, costs lives. And, uh, and, you know, I, I believe, uh, I believe that, The president of the United States should be held accountable to that. I believe uh, the secretary, uh, the secretary of defense, should be held accountable to to that. I believe that there's a lot of people that should be held accountable to that because you know these are American lives uh, uh, that were cost. uh, These are allies' lives, and uh, and then not to mention, uh, and not as important, but not to mention, the eighty-plus billion dollars worth of equipment that was left behind. Uh, I lost a pair of MBGs in my day. You know, I'm going to jail, Uh, but. You know, we're leaving billions of dollars in equipment, and we and we know that they went into the hands of our that equipment went in the hands of our enemies. Not, and I don't just mean the Taliban; I mean you know China, Iran, the Pakistan, ISI uh, have have access to have have our equipment and our technology. And so, someone needs to be held accountable to this. I, I don't, I'm not I'm not uh, optimistic enough that believe that's going to happen, um, but.
0: Well, Chad, I would not advise you to hold your breath on that because accountability is something that needs to be passed around that we're certainly not seeing passed around, especially in the swamp that is Washington. And so we've taken a few uh, divergences away from kind of the central point. Again, the name of the book is Saving Aziz, so we should probably keep talking about Aziz a little bit. But eventually, you know, spoiler alert for, for anyone that doesn't know the story, you guys do save Aziz and his family. But and, and a lot of people thought that that you were in there, you know, running through bullets and, you know, tank fire and grabbing him and running them to save Safety and all of that, and that's just not quite how the story went down. I do want you to take us through Aziz and his family being saved from yeah. your
1: perspective. Yeah, so I mean, um, the the way that the the initial operation went, when went to I went to Abu Dhabi uh, myself, and some of the other other uh, senior guys were in Abu Dhabi, kind of planning out the operation uh, and. and building target packages, Sarah Veraro was in Washington, DC helping clear those packages through joint chiefs sending them to us. We built those packages. we were uh, coordinating with the ground team, which was a uh, sea spray Sean G uh, Tim Kennedy. were outside the wire, moving people into the, into the uh, airport. And then uh, we had a guy named Dave in the airport, managing those uh, those flights on and off H uh, Kaya. And so that was the airport evacuation. Um, we had moved Aziz uh, eight times to try to get him into the, uh, the uh, into the airport. Uh, and, uh, and the day that I actually coordinated with him, I was on, I was on uh, WhatsApp with him at the time, moved him to a point to where we were trying to get him through with uh, Sean G. He went to the wrong side of the airport and we ended up using a, uh, an amazing group of, uh, of Americans that worked with us uh, from a power rescue unit and they were able to help get him through the wire and into the gate. And, uh, and you know, my, my, I will forever be grateful for those, uh, you know, team members that were able to get him inside the gate and get his family in there. Uh, we got that day, we got 180 people out the next day, 800 next day, a thousand. And then we kept just moving as fast as possible. Cause we had no idea. I mean, for the team in Abu Dhabi, that was working 24 seven and a team on the ground, no one stopped, no one stopped to sleep. Uh, because we stopped for like five minutes. You're like, someone's going to die because I took, I, I was selfish enough to take five minutes of sleep and sea spray lost like 37 pounds in 10 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I mean, it was just nonstop. And at, at the end of the 10 days, when the Abigay blew up and we lost 13 of our service members, uh, the what gates were all that shut, we didn't, uh, we, we knew the, uh, the military was pulling out at that point. And, uh, the airport evacuations were over at that time. We had got 12,000 people out, uh, and moved into Abu Dhabi. And we knew in that moment that while the military had to leave, we couldn't leave. Uh, the white house was saying there was hundred Americans. I was on the ground, uh, you know, and, and, and our team was in, in Kabul saying, it's hey, probably thousands of Americans still here, but the truth is it no matter if there's 100 or 1,000, one American doesn't get left behind. And, uh, and so we chose. I mean, that's a president. Uh, pr- that's a promise that the United States military, uh, I think has to the American people. Like we will not leave you behind. Even if it's one person, even if it's Joe Birdall that idiot traitor like we, we willingly sacrificed American lives to go get him. Like that's just a, you know, something that every American should, should rest assured that if you're in danger, if you're in a combat zone and get stuck there, we will scorch the earth around you to get you. Uh, and and that, that was the mentality that we had to stay. We worked with so many other nonprofits. Uh, a lot of them listed in the book, all credit to, to so many people came together to get another 5,000 people out totaling the, you know, the effort to about 17,000 people. Uh, we were flying people out of Maza Sharif, a remote, uh, a remote area of Afghanistan. And that's when we decided, uh, we had to do some other unconventional things to help get more people out. And we put together a two man reconnaissance team to go into Tajikistan, uh, myself and Dennis, staff Short, Dennis Price went to Tajikistan spent 10 days there doing a, we did 10 days on the border there, uh, to build routes out. What had happened was, uh, I don't know how much detail you want me to get in this, but go for what it. it happened, but what had happened was all the Afghans had pushed the Panjir Valley, and uh, and the Panjir Valley was like the last resistance where uh, Ahmad Massoud's son had built the resistance there, and everybody's holding holding out there, and they wanted to cross the border to Tajikistan. Families wanted to cross into Tajikistan, but anybody familiar with that geographic, geography of that area is this twenty five thousand foot peaks. So if you take a, a week long to get a family through one of those valleys to the Tajikistan border. Once they get to the border, they may run into a thousand foot cliff or the Panjia River is like category five. in some points Ice melt water is like a slushy, like a giant slushy. If the water even stops, it freezes. In addition to that, the Taliban's all through there trying to block that border. The Chinese military was there blocking that border. The Russian military was there. And the and, uh, Tajikistan border guards were there. So uh, it was very difficult to cross without knowing what you were getting into. And so we knew that we had to get eyes on the other side and be able to give routes to those people to get across. And so we wanted to put a small team together uh, to do that. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I had picked a couple of different people, and we ended up going down to me and Dennis Price. Dennis Price was a staff sergeant at Third Force Recon Company. He had just switched from active duty to reserves. Another looking at the background, tons of combat experience, no ego left to have. Uh, uh, he was a scout sniper who taught, you know, teach. he's taught all over the world that British SAS sniper and uh, SF, Army, I think he's one of the only... Non-green berets to teach at Army SF Sniper School, and uh, and then he's you know has a lot, he worked at a JSOC unit, so he had a lot of experience. And I, I asked the Marine Corps to cut him loose, and I wrote his commander, Lieutenant Colonel Tom, Lieutenant Colonel Tommy Waller, hey, will you cut Dennis Price loose to come on a humanitarian mission? I knew it was kind of an impossible ask, but back to those miracles that God performed, he said, put it in writing, and I put it in writing, and they approved him to come. And uh, and so that was a pretty pretty incredible thing. And uh, he and I he and I took off to. Tajikistan did about a 12 hour drive through the mountains and spent 10 days on that border, literally swimming in Afghanistan every night and building those routes out. And, uh, and, uh, it was, it was a crazy, crazy 10 days. And, uh, and you know, a lot of people that knew about that thought it was, thought it was, uh, nuts and reckless that we did that. But look, I mean, we, I'm a pretty experienced guy. I've been around a long time, but I, I knew, I knew the risk. Tim knew the, Tim Kennedy knows the risk. Dennis Price knew the risk. We're not naive to say like, hey, let's just go out and do... Like, we, We've we assessed the risk. We knew what we were getting into. Uh, this was not haphazard or dangerous. Uh, I've done reconnaissance missions and border recon all through the world and forward to operating. I had already worked in this region before. Forwarding, forwarding reps are... I, I knew the danger we we're getting into. We just assessed it and we were like... And I, this is something I said to my wife. We were like, what if this was us? What if this was my daughter yeah. that was going to be raped the rest of her life? What if was my, my kids that would be go through this. I would be praying someone would come help us. No one was going and and we assessed the risk and said, you know what, let's go help. Yeah, that was
0: a very interesting part of the book because it's like you can't expect Mrs. Robichaux to understand exactly what you're going through because she hasn't had the same experiences. Obviously, you've detailed uh, y'all's uh, story before on this show and in books and in speeches and things like that. And so you you go through all that as a couple. You come out uh, you know, as a new man and then here you go doing this thing that seems crazy to the generalized populace, but to a guy like you, it doesn't seem as crazy because you've seen behind the, ba- the veil at least a little bit. So yeah, that, that's a great thing about this book, guys, about Saving Aziz, is it's not just about Afghanistan, but you spent a lot of detail. You, you get into a lot of detail about what went on in Tajikistan and why you had to do those things and how that's going to benefit everybody moving forward. So you guys should check out the book to get even more of those details. I do want to go back to the moment that you actually reunited with Aziz, because at this point you had not seen Aziz and his family for a very long time. Okay. Yeah. And yet here you are interacting with him and his family and they're safe. And, and you know that they're safe and there's no question that they're safe.
1: They're in a different country. What was that like for you? I mean, it's surreal. It's still so surreal. I mean, he's been in, he's been in Texas now for, for, uh, almost a year. It's still yeah. like, it's so surreal. Like, I mean, when, when I seen them, I just, uh, I mean, right away, it's just like, it was, a, it was a, it was a breath of relief when, uh, when I got the word, when I got the text from Sean G, I got a picture of him with him and a uh, him and the power rescue guy that got him across and, uh, that was a relief and then and then walking up to the humanitarian center and walking in his room and and uh just seeing his face and we gave each other this hugest hug and held each other and we both started crying and, and that was just so surreal and then his kids came and they called me uncle Uncle Chad, and they put their arms around me and start crying again and then it, it was just so so surreal to see that. and I think one of the most beautiful moments is uh is Hatra, his wife because uh. It, it, we have this story that goes all the way back to, to 2004 and, and where Haziz saw my wife on a – not FaceTime, but Yahoo Messenger back in then, and, and he seen my wife and my wife – like he was like blown away. He got to see my wife, so he wanted me to see his wife, which if you go to anything about Afghan culture, like other men don't see your wife, Afghan men, family members, much less a, American. But he, we had this relationship, and he wanted me to meet his wife. It was a super awkward thing. like Like I'm sitting in the kitchen. And uh, he's in there, he's like nervous, sweating. And, and she comes out and she's like kind of wrapped up. He comes out like really quickly, like pokes her head around the corner and she goes away. And that was like my <laughs> interaction with her. And it's like this. And then over the years, I got more and more, you know, I'd see her in the kitchen and, and over time, but now we're in Abu Dhabi and, and the kid, Aziz hugs me, the kids hugs me and Hotra's in the back corner away, like appropriately in Afghan culture and puts her hand over her heart. And uh, and, and that was like, and she could tell, like she looked at me, eye contact, like really embraced that moment. She was like, "Thank you." And then months later, uh, nine months later, after the humanitarian center, I come back from Ukraine. I was in Ukraine. I was in uh, I was in Kharkiv, and I come back, and uh, and I'm like trying to make it to because Aziz is gonna be at my house, so I'm like driving through Ukraine get to Poland and I'm like, Oh man, I'm not, I hadn't showered in like 10 days. Cause I'm at no Ukraine border. And I'm like, Oh man, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get the shower before getting get in my plane. Uh, because I'm not going <laughs> to miss this flight to go see his ease in them. I did. Luckily I did get the shower, but that would have been, but, uh, and then I, I, I get in the plane, fly back and they're waiting for me in my yard and I pull up in my yard in Texas and uh, I see, uh, uh, Mashkar, the little one, uh, seven years old, running around in New York, with my dog, and, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, is this, this real? Like he's here?" And they're all in front of my in front of my house, and my wife's there with with the family, and Aziz runs up and hugs me, and and then a uh, little Mashkar comes wraps his arms around me, and then Hatra, reach, just walks up to me and wraps her arms around me and embraces in this big hug and, and says, "Thank you, brother," and uh, so the this evolution of this you know, friendship with with Hatra is like. It's just incredible, and then and we we've she's like so funny like she never in Kabul there's no trees there yeah so Texas is trees everywhere so she thinks <laughs> it's the jungle and something right. so uh, Aziz is out of town so I took her and the in the and all the kids I took them to see Jurassic Park and I didn't realize how, how real it seemed to her and so she's like giving me a hard time. she's like hilarious and so we just had we've just had such a great time with them and so many firsts like first hamburger first pizza first time going fishing i took it i take a, i take a skydive a lot so i take a z skydive and he's like, oh my god brother like you saved me from Afghanistan to die die in texas but, <laughs> but yeah, so many so many uh it's just so surreal we were in a hunting we were in a we were in deer hunting the other day and it was like it, it, we actually went deer hunting when the texas cold front came through and it's like six degrees outside with chill, and we we're like sitting outside in the, in the, and he's like he's like, can you believe we're here brother in Texas? Like hunting. This is like so crazy. And I'm like, man, it's just so crazy. He's like, well, at least nobody's trying to shoot us right now. <laughs> the nobody shooting back at us. Hey, you know, so that's the cool. great thing about reading about this and following
0: all of this on social media. And we're going to be talking to Aziz later in, in, in releasing that to you guys to kind of get it from his perspective. But it, it is such an unbelievable blessing. Like I can't imagine the, the, the smiles like you've been in those situations in your life. And certainly you guys listening to this right now where you're, you're smiling so much where your mouth starts to hurt and you're not doing it to be fake, but it's just like, you're so happy and you're so relieved and you feel God's blessing in a different way. Because that's the thing as Americans, Chad, how many Americans have to pray? Give us this day, our daily bread. Not many, how many Americans have to do that? But, you know, billions of people all over the globe do have to do that. And they're they're very unsure about where their next meal, their next batch of water is going to come from, whether or not the government's coming to take them out today or whether rebels are going to come and take them out tomorrow. And so it's, it's a big, big issue and it's a tremendous blessing. And that's the message to every American listening to this right now is, could y'all stop complaining? I know things are tough. I know when you don't get a hundred likes on your Facebook photo of your kid, that it doesn't make you feel good. But at the same time, like there's real persecution. And then there's whatever negative comments someone left on your Instagram post, And they're just not equal. If we can, if we can say that to go back to to Afghanistan, to the expansion. So, obviously, you guys expanded out from Aziz and his family, and you had all the stuff in there. And I don't want to give away everything in the book, guys. You have to go buy Saving Aziz, but there is one particular story that I wanted you to give us at least the Spark Notes version of because I, you know, being around you and around Tim and around Sarah and around all the other people that we can't even name, I never heard this story. And so, first of all, I'm mad at all you guys. Why didn't you tell me this story? But it's the story of the first successful rescue operation that you all did. And it was about one young woman named Narna and just an absolutely crazy set of circumstances. And when you want to talk about God's timing, it certainly came through in this story as well. So can you tell us that story?
1: Yeah. I, I got a, I, the emails are just pouring in and at the time, I mean, you gotta think like we didn't, what we did, like the system we set up, being around the government, it would it took, we would not, if I was in the government, we were never able to pull this off. Was too many red tapes and we, we get out. So the, put we, we were building a system in place and, uh, and Sarah's building this process to get, cause in the first week we had like 15,000 requests for, for, for evacuation. And, uh, and we had to vet to make sure they had like either SIV or P1, P2, uh, they had, you know, been an interpreter or, or they were a legitimate, legitimate orphans or, or, you know, Christians that be persecuted. They were members green court holders, American citizens. So we're going through these emails. Everybody's getting emails. Tim's starting to get emails. Everybody that knows me is getting emails. Uh, and when people start finding out what we're doing, so I was forwarding emails to Sarah and just, and her and her team were just busting through them. And I caught one, caught my attention. Cause it said, American U student uh, trapped. And the, the U was meant to be university, but it was a typo. And so, so I re- I thought that you was a typo uh, and, and, it, and, and, it was American student. And so it caught my attention because I thought American student is American girl uh, caught there. And, uh, and I I forwarded to Dan, uh, who was, who was, uh, helping coordinate there. And, uh, and they had a cell phone number on it. We, we called it. And then she was literally at the time, she was just outside the airport in a, in a cam air office, uh, hiding And the Taliban already caught her once. and, And she ran away. They had targeted her because she was a, she worked in the presidential palace, English speaking, Western, wore Western clothes and they even sent her a picture of herself saying, we know who you are. We're going to rape you and kill you. She had, she had got a picture of herself. And so they had already tried to catch her once she got away. and Now she's hiding in this camera office and the Taliban's actively looking for her. And so we coordinated with the, uh, with a, uh, JSOC unit who was willing to, uh, leave the airport. Uh, I don't want to say if there was, did it against permission or whatever, but they were leave, mm-hmm. willing to leave the airport. And as the Taliban was catching her and dragging her out there they came in, And had this, uh, this moment where they had this standoff with the Taliban and the Taliban uh, gave her up and, and, uh, and uh, JSA guys were able to bring her back into the airport and and rescue her. And uh, so it's, you know, it was just total God timing. Uh, She's here in the United States safe. And, uh, you know, and one, one, one example of incredible story. And that was the first person that we, we actually coordinated to get on. Uh, Our guys didn't grab her, but we coordinated to get her safely in the airport
0: just and I mean again like you said that's just one example of the the hundreds and thousands of stories of these different rescues but then there's also unfortunately the stories of the rescues that didn't happen yeah. and so obviously we're talking about the bus incident and there there are certainly others of people that you couldn't get to people messaging you people that you literally just could not get to yeah. so I talked to Sarah about that last year uh, I talked to Tim about it off air and you know I'm talking to you about it now but for those that aren't aware of what happened describe the bus incident and, and what exactly happened happened and then specifically cuz you were hearing about this as it was happening live and all that so take us through all of that cuz it's it's literally something that makes me so angry i could spit nails so go yeah. ahead
1: yeah i mean i i, I wasn't on the ground in at the time i was yeah. in abu dhabi and i was but i was in the coordinating end of it and we had worked all night i mean uh, to coordinate these buses to load up these uh, load up we had i think i think it was 25 or 27 american blue passport holders like you and me uh blue passport holders green card holders we had a couple of uh, hundred, a couple of hundred uh, uh, orphans on the bus, uh, and then the, the families of the pilots that have been do, flying the evacuations. Um, so the family members of the pilots that have been flying the evacuated, These are guys that didn't tend to their families. They're working for everyone else, flying everybody else out. That was their families. And, and some of those people on the list were people that U.S. Congress members, U.S. Senate members had special lists of people that were like, had relationships with the government. That's like secret relationships with the government that had to be on this list. So these are all like vetted people, uh, and, and, uh, and we had them in these buses coming through the gates. And uh, and as they're coming through the gates, uh, you know, they made through all the checkpoints. Uh, a, a colonel, um, and I, I don't think I'm allowed to say his name right now, uh, who is in charge there, basically had a beef with uh, with Tim. Uh, he, did, he didn't like the fact that Tim was popular. I mean, that's, that's basically what it came down to and said, you know, Hey, this, who are you guys? Why are you guys here? This isn't a Tim Kennedy show. He was, you know, he was saying this isn't a Tim Kennedy show. So he had a personal issue with Tim being there. And, you know, for those people that don't know Tim, Tim has a personality on, on, on the media, right? But Tim is like a super humble, like cool dude. And, uh, Mm -hmm. and he, he didn't go there for attention or anything else. When he showed up there, you know, I asked him to come. He said, yes, he was offered a lot of money, by other people to go uh, we didn't pay him anything. I didn't pay him anything. Uh, he didn't make anything. So he chose to pass up a lot of money to go there to do something for free, uh, because he thought it was the right mission to be a part of. Uh, and he, and he trusted me to come. And, and w- when he came, he was just like, he showed up like, Hey, where's the broom? Like, what can I do? Like that, that's his attitude when he showed up, like, what do you need me to do? Uh, I, I'm doing this. We need you to go and support the ground team. And, and he did, you know, that was, that was where his best fit. And uh, so he was just humbly there. He was trying not to cause incident with this guy. Uh, This guy had a big attitude towards him. And the guy's telling him to turn the buses around and take him back through the checkpoints. Now, what that means is turn the buses around, take him back through checkpoints, means go back to the Taliban. The Taliban had the outer perimeter because that's who the State Department allowed to have the outer perimeter uh, as, as them being in charge of NEO operation the non-combatant evacuation operation, the Taliban out, out, out of perimeter. So basically take these people, these these orphans and these American citizens, green card holders, and bring them back to the Taliban. And so obviously argument ensued uh, with, hey, we can't do that. Can we, at least, can we at least take them out and let you look at the paperwork? Can we at least pull the American citizens out with the blue passports? And uh, he adamantly said no. And, and ultimately he was in charge of that, that base and that entry and was able to turn those buses around and send them back out to the Taliban. And those people were you know, we're never seen again. Uh, I mean, we knew that at that time, they're, they're not going to come, they'll come back through and, uh, you know, and, uh, it's a tragedy. I mean, it was, it's a tragedy among you know, many tragedies we've seen. And uh, you know, we get, we get a lot of credit for the success of this, but there was a lot of tragedies. There was, there was this, you know, right before that, there was this 300 group of 300 orphans that we, we couldn't move, move one more mile. And, and I remember us finally saying we can't, we have to move on and tear that tear that paper off the wall of our operation center and, and 300, you know, those 300 human lives. we had to ball up the paper and move on to the next operation. And, you know, and, and as you know, it was a lot, a lot of victory, a lot of success, but equally as much tragedy. And, uh, yeah,
0: just, it's a crazy story. And I get the sense that that is a story that we're not going to be done hearing about. And we'll go, go ahead and leave it there. But one thing
1: And everything like that, uh, under, under,
0: I think I've heard a thing or two about an investigation into what exactly precipitated that ridiculous response from that jack wagon. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll see if justice is served there. But um, one thing that is very concerning for a lot of Americans and, you know, a lot of people all over the globe is the relocation process of the Afghan refugees and the vetting that was in place. And so here's here's a, a paragraph that I want to read from the book, because I thought this was appropriate to address that. The government and military were not following anywhere near the same vetting processes as the NGOs like Save Our Allies. I've had the privilege of talking face-to-face with Afghan refugees now in the United States, including some who were evacuated on our flight and others on the Department of Defense flights. They tell me how individuals they recognized as Taliban and ISIS members were boarding Department of Defense flights at HKIA. They saw prisoners who were released from the Bagram prison waiting among the crowd outside the airport gates, especially in the initial days after Kabul fell. When the White House needed positive numbers to report, the military would crack open a gate and let a specific number of people through. Those who managed to secure a spot at the front of the gates were the strongest and fittest, basically the men. Which is super bigoted of you to even say, how dare you? But we'll get back into the quote here. They were getting in ahead of the women, children, families, passport holders, and SIVs. Those getting through, like the Taliban and ISIS members, were only getting a pat down before being brought straight to America. That's a big concern. Whenever I talk about the southern border and the stuff going on you know, in Arizona and Texas, one of the things I'm concerned about is not migrants that, that want a better, better life in our country. I'm worried about what my senator from Oklahoma pointed out last year when he addressed the Senate, which is we have arrested – we have apprehended somebody at the southern border – from every single country in the world since Joe Biden has taken over as president. And if you didn't know that, not everybody from every country across the globe loves the United States of America. So they've apprehended North Koreans and Iranians and Afghans and people from Eritrea and every different country you could think of. That's what concerns me about the southern border, fentanyl and everything else. But that also concerns me about these relocations where you're relocating people that you don't really know who they are just because you want your numbers to look good. Like, was it really that simple? Because, I mean, I, initially I thought that's what Save Our Allies was doing. And I was really terrified until I realized what y'all's process was like and how different it was. So give us a little bit more detail on that.
1: Yeah. And, and not only did the, you know, and that quote kind of captures it, as they went through the gate and the strongest and fittest made it through, uh, they're getting packed on these planes and these planes are coming straight to the United States. They're going to, uh, to several different, uh, locations around, around the country. And there was no state department process there. And, and they were not, they were not obligated to stay on those bases. And so many of them just left into the populace of the United States and we don't know where they are or where they're, where they're going to be. And we don't know who they are most importantly. And, uh, you know, by the way, like, I think it's important to say, this is not something to pin on the our, our US troops, uh, you know, uh, our, our troops to me are victims in this and forced to do a job, that they didn't want to do it that way. They want to do the right thing, but you know, they're having to be, you know, forced and used in, in this way. But, uh, so I, I hate to, the that the DOD and the military is even so associated with this, but they were, you know, they had to put people in these planes. They, they, they flew them right to the United States and the state department was not part of that process of vetting them. And so they did not go through a process of, uh, of, and, and maybe never will. Um, the, the NGOs were not allowed to bring people to the United States. I don't have that power to put people in a plane and fly them straight to the United States. The NGOs had to find a third, had to broker a relationship with a third party country that would allow them to come into humanitarian center where it would be locked down and controlled. And then the State department would come there and, uh, and vet them and, uh, or maybe not even come to the United States. We didn't, one of the things I think is a very important note to, to understand about Uh, what we did at Save Our Allies and what NGOs uh, did is we didn't just evacuate people to bring them to the United States. We don't have that power. We evacuated them from Afghanistan. Where they ended up after that is is not up to us. If they came to the United States, if they went to Canada or or Brazil or wherever else, you know, that was – we were not – we don't have that power. We were getting them out of Afghanistan. We were working with countries. Other NGOs worked with other countries. Uh, Us at Save Our Allies, we worked with the United Arab Emirates and brought them to Abu Dhabi. We were working with places to bring them the, to, uh, to humanitarian centers. We brought uh, For us, we brought to Abu Dhabi, and then we also did Albania. And uh, you know, beyond that, that's up to the United States State Department to take them further. Uh, we don't have that ability. A lot of people, I think, were really nervous when they saw us evacuating people, and they're like, oh my gosh, Save Our Allies is bringing all these people to America. They don't know who they are. Again, we don't have that power or, or capacity to be able to do that. Uh, we brought in uh, what's called a lily pad um, and the humanitarian center and then the state department process them from there.
0: Well, I, I certainly appreciate you. You giving us that because man, that was the anxiety that I was feeling along with a no, lot of other people at I that time. Cause you know, <laughs> it's, it's crazy to watch what you're seeing. But then when you see these plane loads, I remember seeing the pictures on Twitter. And so do you of these plane loads full of only military aged males. And I'm like, is it a shock to anybody that there's Taliban in, on that plane right now or ISIS or ISIS-K or Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram or somebody is randomly snuck onto that plane. But, again, we'll have to see how the how the dust settles from
1: there. But I, I do have want to – <laughs> I yeah. had those same concerns. I was, I was right there with you. People were, like, asking me about it. Like, oh, you guys are doing that? I'm like, no, i got the same concerns. Like, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> but yeah. You should not
0: be it- just – well, that's why there is a process and that's why you have everybody that you described as earlier. Like you have all the different people on the team that are helping you with that vetting process. Like again, you know, talking to Sarah and some of the people, Sarah Verardo and some of the people on her team, you know, with uh, save our allies and then the independence fund and really all these people that were coming in to help and volunteer. Like that's, that's how y'all were able to do the stuff you were doing so efficiently as, as well as the actual tangible stuff happening on the ground. Yeah. But at the end of the book, you have this quote, which is a really good wrap up of at least the Aziz section was, but over 10 days when the dust settled, we had rescued more than 12,000 people out of Afghanistan with the best I can estimate over 50 recovery operations. Only the Department of Defense evacuated more people and we saved disease. And as you said, that number ran up to about 17,000. Y'all Y'all, y'all started the, the work in Ukraine. You have work going in other places. So that's what I kind of want to get into now. I want to look a little bit towards the future before we let you go for today. The, the future focus of Save Our Allies. So is there still work to be done in Afghanistan that y'all are still actively doing? Again, only talk about what you can talk about here on air. But is, is this just going to be a standing organization that when crap pops off anywhere in the world, Save Our Allies is going to be there taking care of business?
1: Yeah, well, for me, you know, Mighty Oaks Foundation is the, you know, that's my baby. That's what I, what I do. I, I helped stand up. You know, I was the founding you know, founding member of Save Our Allies. Uh, when the Afghanistan mission was over, I kind of worked in the kickoff of Ukraine. But uh, I stepped away from Save Our Allies, not for any other reason than Mighty Oaks where my focus is. And uh, so, you know, best. I'm I'm very close to Tim and and Sarah and Nick still. uh, I I do believe they're going to keep the the organization going and and be able to do humanitarian stuff around the world. I know they work in Ukraine right now. Uh, I'm focused on the work that Mighty Oaks Foundation is doing in Ukraine, and we're bringing our spiritual resiliency program to the front lines of the Ukrainian troops there. Uh, I think one of the big things I could hit on, you know, there's always – uh, drama with these things is, is why would you go and, and and support Ukraine? You know, Zawinski's corrupt. You know, my reply is, you know, so is President Biden. And uh, and uh, I don't care about President Biden's corruption or Zawinski's corruption. I, I actually do care. But but uh, what I care about in the effort of humanitarian work is I care about the people there. And uh, people there are, are, are victims of being You know, invaded by a third by a world superpower and having ballistic sized missiles, the size of telephone poles Mm -hmm. blown into the civilian civilian apartment buildings and chemical weapons are being used and mass graves, which I've seen with my own eyes or or, or being filled with civilian uh, uh, executed civilians. And and so uh, I have uh, been to Ukraine 10 times since February, um, worked on some evacuation operations with Benjamin Hall with we did that with Save Our Allies. And, and, uh, and I'm taking out Mighty Oaks, uh, taking veterans, uh, from Mighty Oaks Foundation and bringing our, uh, spiritual resiliency program to the front line, providing medical support, uh, with equipment and instruction on how to use that support, uh, kind of filling in the gap where those billions of dollars are not reaching. And, and then, uh, bringing out our mental and spiritual resiliency program to the Freedom Fighters on the front lines, uh, defending their homes and families and, uh, and way of life. And so that's what we've been doing there. And we've got Mighty Oaks, uh. We do so much for our first responders and, and veterans and active youth service members back home. And, and we have our separate international division for stuff like this. Nothing new for us. We've been doing this since 2016 before the Ukrainian war kicked off. We had already been there three times. So. Yeah, absolutely. And guys, uh,
0: there's a link in the show notes to the Mighty Oaks Foundation. So you can check out a little bit more information on that. Again, speaking about the future a little bit, Chad, and you've alluded to some of this, the strategic ramifications of giving up Afghanistan and specifically giving up Bagram Air Base. I actually had a discussion with somebody who works. I got to be careful. Uh, he works in Washington, D.C., and he's not an unimportant person. He and I are having uh, you know dinner uh, at, at some point in the past. There you go. Have I covered all my bases? Yeah. And we were talking about the giving up of Bagram Air Base, and I mentioned it, and he goes, Kyle Bagram's not that big a deal. And I was like, what? wait a minute, just strategically where the you know the thumbtack is on the map makes it strategic. And he's like, and this is a guy that knows a thing or two. This isn't just some some yeah. you know guy that plays whack-a-mole with his opinions. And I was like, he's the only person I ever heard say that Bagram wasn't that big a deal. But obviously the future of the Afghanistan hinges on the door that's now been open for Iranian interests in the country and in the land, Chinese interests in the country and in the land, giving the, the rights up to the land and its natural minerals and metals and things like that. So Talk to me strategically about the future of Afghanistan, because I don't want to be, you know, the guy that's just looking up the sky that's falling and saying like, hey, this is just going to be, you know, we're going to get Taliban 2.0 in X amount of time, or we're going to see a terrorist attack in X amount of time, or China is going to take over and it's going to screw up the world. But what are we looking at for the future because of what we did in the summer of 2021?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, Afghanistan has always been a big deal. People have fought for that land for thousands of years for a reason. Right. Uh, you know, Alexander the Great wanted it. Russia, you know, Russia's wanted it. Uh, all all of these places. Have, it's called the graveyard of empires because mm-hmm. people have fought for control uh, of Afghanistan. It is a strategic part in the globe. I think in today's world, it's the most strategic place in the globe. And, uh, and there's a lot of uh, motivations and reasons for people uh, to have it. I mean, one motivation for America would be to have that strategic location to provide global security. Uh, as far as NATO, as you know, NATO as well, just to have that strategic location in the globe. But, uh, you know, there's motivations for places like, uh, for like China. I mean, China wanted those mineral rights to the Hindu Kush mountains. Uh, they've wanted it for a long time. I was called a conspiracy theorist for saying that. Uh, but, but in uh, September 1st, uh, the Taliban gave the mineral rights to the Chinese government for the mineral rights in the Hindu Kush mountains. And, uh, there's, mm-hmm. that's worth billions and billions of dollars. Uh, that's where, you know, all the lithium comes from for, you know, for all these, uh, your car batteries and all that, all that stuff for the, you know, for the, uh, for like Tesla and all these, and so that's where it all comes from. And, uh, that's where the most, the most abundant source of it is. And then you have, uh, you have the interest of, uh, you know, economically you have the interest of, Iran who has sanctioned oil can't sell it anywhere and uh, and China who needs oil and wants to buy cheap oil from Iran the only thing that sat in between those those two uh, that transaction was the United States military at Bagram Air Force Base in the middle of uh, Afghanistan and so they needed the United States to be pulled out of there so they'd have that free and that free uh, traffic route to be able to move uh, sanctioned sanction Iranian oil to China and we already know that's happening now uh, and then you know, then there's Pakistan ISI that wanted uh, belt to have that that strategic location in uh, Pakistan, intelligence, and now we already know that both China and Pakistan uh, have a place on Bagram Air Force Base, and are pretty much essentially two uh, countries uh, partnered in, in running that that base. And so, there's a lot of strateg- uh, strategic uh, interest in, in in that location. Uh, we've already seen it. Um, anybody that follows, the, you know, intelligence, open source intelligence information, can already see what the Taliban's doing there. And then, you know, within months, you've seen you've seen it become the hotbed for terrorism, Al zahiri Uh, from ISIS was freely walking around uh, Kabul, felt comfortable enough to walk around. Uh, I kind of got a little irritated when the White House was high-fiving that we killed him. I'm like, of course we should kill him. I mean, I I agree with killing him. Of course we should kill him. But why was he walking around freely in in Kabul? Because we created that situation. We allowed him to be there uh, and create a hotbed of terrorism. Uh, For Al-Zahiri to to feel comfortable walking around uh, Kabul uh, is an indication that we, we made a bad decision uh, by by opening that up. And, and by the way, that Doha agreement, that shows the Doha agreement, uh, which which tells the Taliban that they can't uh, have any terrorism happening there, which is, is a contradiction in terms because they are a terrorist organization. Uh, it shows that it means nothing. Wait a minute. Wait a minute,
0: Chad. This is breaking news to me. You're telling me that terrorists don't pay attention to international laws.
1: I was told that they would get a slap on the wrist and that they didn't want that to happen. Are you Taliban saying that's not 2. how it works? Taliban 2.0 is supposed to follow the rules, but yeah, it's still agreement's a joke. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and not only is it a joke, but where are the consequences, right? Are, are there any consequences to it? I mean, why are you, why are you going to have an agreement if there's no consequences?
0: Uh, yeah, I would certainly uh, agree with that. It's, it's, There's so much here that we could talk about, but I was totally kidding when I said we would go seven hours. If you were here with me in my studio right now, we would certainly do that. We got a secondary studio over there just for guys like you. But as much as I don't think I've gotten you into enough trouble today, I'm going to leave you with this last question because you mentioned your son Hunter earlier. So he's actually a third generation Robichaux Marine uh, to be very specific. So this was a guy that went over there with you. You basically couldn't stop him from going overseas with you during this entire thing. He says this because he wanted to watch your back but i think it's because he wanted to watch you know trip and fall or do something bad that he could always bring up at thanksgiving dinner or something like that but the question i have is kind of in the vein of what we were talking about about the future of afghanistan the future of the world really but also the future of the united states specifically as it pertains to the state of the military and really the wokeness therein you see the the vice president of the united states here recently posted this photo of her with a bunch of you know uh, people in uniform and it's it looked like they were all picked for a specific reason like they were women you know people of color they they were like this you know array of people that you know are basically democratic voters which isn't to say they're not going to be good soldiers which isn't to say that they're not courageous none of those types of things But it seems like the focus on the military is we want more people that have a non-binary mom or have two daddies or something like that to be in the military as opposed to we want the people that are going to be the best at killing people and breaking stuff, which is what I thought the whole idea of the United States military was, is at the threat of us killing you and breaking your stuff, don't attack us. And if you do attack us, we're going to kill all of you and break all of your stuff. I'm very, very concerned about the future of the military. I'm concerned about my sons that are, you know, two and and below one years old right now that, you know, 18 years down the line, will the military even be something that a young virile testosterone filled boy will even want to go
1: into at that point? So what do you think? You should be concerned, and uh, everyone should be concerned because we're already seeing that now. I mean, the recruiting numbers have never been so low. Uh, they're they're twenty eight percent down. Uh, they're they're twenty eight percent down on average, and that's considering that they're already cutting positions to try to skew those numbers. The army just cut fifteen thousand positions. Uh, the motive, the morale of the military has never been lower because of COVID, because of all this woke stuff, and not and not focused on training. Uh, you know, the, everyone needs to realize that the purpose of the United States military regardless of your political position, the purpose of the United States military is to win wars and protect the national interests of the United States. That's the purpose of the military. Uh, that purpose uh, is not what we're seeing take place right now. Uh, I mean, the, the, the White House just spent $2 million to do a study. Uh, by the way, the study was done by two PhDs out of, I think, Pennsylvania or Pittsburgh uh, that never served in the military. And the study was on uh, removing the, the harmfulness of using sir or ma'am in Marine Corps boot camp, uh, yeah, and uh, and I mean, so things like this have no place in the military. It's wokeism has no place in the military. It harms our national security. And uh, you know, the last I checked, the, it, it is not a right to serve in the military. We keep hearing that people have a right to serve. You don't have a right to serve. My son, uh, Hayden, who is a uh, who is the my youngest son, Hayden, who is the eighty after eighty four years of service in our family, uh, in, in fifty four years in the Marine Corps. He, he just, uh, you know, my son Hunter was a Marine and then my son Hayden, he was, uh, put out of the Marine Corps because he didn't take the vaccine. He didn't have a right to serve. Right. Uh, mm. but he can't take a vaccine, but he, if he took uh but if he wants to take, you know, gene altering, uh, hormone altering medicines or anything like that, you know, then he would have a right to serve. Um, you apply for the military, you get accepted in the military. If I don't have flat feet, I don't get in the military. If I was missing my pinky finger, I wouldn't be able to get in the military. Um, if I have color color blindness, I don't get in the military. It's, you don't have a right to serve in the military. You have to be qualified to serve in the military. And that and qualifications are based on our ability to put the best of our nation forward to protect our, our nation from our enemies around the world. And uh, this social wokeism is, uh, is, is, is it's not only uh, destroying our country, but it's extremely dangerous to our national security. I don't feel our military's morale right now is where it needs to be, uh, to, be uh, to, to have our, our nation – you know in a position to defend itself and it's it's, it's terrifying uh, it should be terrifying to every american
0: well chad i certainly agree with that and i don't know what can turn it around but it needs to happen quickly. And obviously I don't think that's going to be because your favorite, you know, politician that wears a red tie as opposed to a blue tie getting in the office is going to fix all of this, but the the trends are not good and the trend lines need to change. And we certainly want to be there for that. But Chad, we've covered an unbelievable amount of ground. This is a new record for you coming on our show. This is longest time we spent together again. I know seven hours was the goal, but we made it about 90 minutes. I hope you're satisfied with that, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest?
1: No, no. Uh, you know, I'm excited for everyone to read Saving Aziz. I'd uh, like to with any other, any, any other book. you know, Reviews help. So if, if you read it and like it, uh, shoot a review. If you don't like it, then keep it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that's the thing, guys. Only leave five-star
0: reviews. If it's four or below, just move on with your life. You don't need to waste your time leaving a review saying you didn't like it very much. Leave your five stars. Guys, it is in the show notes, Saving Aziz. It is well worth your time. Chad Robichaud, thank you for coming back on Undaunted Life A Man's podcast.
1: Thanks, bro. Appreciate it. God bless.
0: There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the return appearance of Chad Robichaux on our show. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to the book, Saving Aziz, How the Mission to Help One Became a Calling to Rescue Thousands from the Taliban. I've also got links to the Save Our Allies and Mighty Oaks website. And then I've got a link to Chad Robichaux's Instagram page and his last appearance on our show, episode 302. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just you shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah